Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. You can find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. In case you're wondering, I did not forget shoes this morning. Um, this is what happens when sciatica decides to flare the morning of, of a sermon, so I'm preaching in socks today. Um, this morning, as we get started, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to tell them, if you don't have a neighbor right near you, find somebody near you. I want you to tell them your favorite memory of hide-and-go-seek. Go. I love how sometimes I ask you to share about something and it's, it's a little slow going. But you talk about hide and seek and everybody's got a story from some version of hide and seek that they've played. Um, we, have, we love a good hide and seek game in our, our house, but we also like just the hide and scare game at our house. Um, like how bad can you scare someone? I won't, yeah, we, we have some moments like that. But my, one of my favorite hide and seek mo- memories was when um, it was a Christmas that we had all managed to get home to my mom and dad's house. We had all the kids, they all had matching pajamas that year. They were like green and white striped pajamas. And my mom and dad had this really weird Christmas tree that like had a circle at the base of it. And the, the branches like laid out around it. So the center of the tree was hollow. So weird. But anyway, so we had this Christmas tree and it, Everybody, you know, you play hide-and-seek, and you have the big kids who are like, they really know how to play hide-and-seek. And then you had the little kids, like um, my niece, Ariel, who was real little at the time. And they were like, she, you know, she'll stand by the wall and, and act like she's hidden. Reagan used to do that. She would stand by a wall, and she would turn her head and think you couldn't see her. But um, so it was our goal to try and, like, hide the littler kids so that the big kids had to actually search a little harder. Well, so this, we got this brilliant idea that we were going to put my niece up inside the Christmas tree. So she climbs, we had to move presents, she climbs under the tree and she stands in there holding the pole of the tree. It, the kids searched forever looking for Ariel. And it was the greatest because she's in her little green and white pajamas, so she kind of blended in with the Christmas tree. 
But um, I just, I remember that. I remember them finding it, and then they were jealous because the rest of them wanted to stand in the Christmas tree and hide. Um, but none of the rest of them fit quite like Ariel did at that time. So it's one of my favorite memories of, of hide-and-seek. I have lots more. We could talk all day about it. Um, my favorite growing up, though, was uh, we played hide-and-seek one time, and my mom and dad did the same thing we had done, and they helped my little brother hide so that he wasn't just standing by the wall hiding. Well, they hid him so good that we couldn't find him. We searched for over an hour. I still can't believe they did this. They zipped him into a suitcase in the basement, and he fell asleep in the suitcase. <laughs> there was like a little crack at the top of it, so he didn't like suffocate. But I'm just like, my kids would not get into a suitcase willingly in the dark in the basement and sit there. But he did, and we didn't find him. My parents had to go down and like open it up, and there he was like laying there asleep in the suitcase with his blankie. But anyway, so. We, good times. We, we played lots of hide-and-seek in our house. Well, our title today is Seek and Rescue. And the reason that we're doing that is we're talking about a series on grace. And I think one of the greatest examples of hide-and-seek is our relationship with the Creator sometimes. We like to hide. We want to hide our sin. We want to hide all of us from Him. And yet He constantly seeks us. And so today, that's kind of what we're talking about. God is, He's he always knows where we are, right? But he still seeks us, even when we try to hide from him. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Paul emphasizes that we are not... Um, we're not just stuck, and we're not just sick in our sins. We're actually dead in our sins. He's speaking here of spiritual death. Um, we can walk around with our heart beating inside of us and yet still be totally dead to spiritual truth. We don't um, come to God. He comes to us. When we're spiritually dead, we need help from the outside, and that's what the seeking grace of God is. I want to give you some examples of seeking grace that might be a little bit more tangible. Um, how many of you know the story of Sleeping Beauty? Right? The, the queen puts a curse on her, and she puts her to sleep, and what, is she, what happens? She has to wait until what? Until her prince comes to kiss her and awaken her from her sleep, Right? Um, this is what seeking grace is. Sins put us in a spiritual death sleep. And it is a kiss of life from our Savior that brings us back to life again. Um, in Luke 15, we read about the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, um, he, he runs away, right? He takes his inheritance. He blows his inheritance. He runs out of money. He runs out of friends. And here he is running back home because he has nothing left. And the father runs and embraces him and kisses him. 
The son is dead in his ways. And the father offers forgiveness that's totally undeserved by his son. That is God seeking grace. God's presence in our lives and the action of the Holy Spirit, even before we hear about him, is seeking grace. I know I've shared this story before, but the Holy Spirit was at work in my dad's heart and in my dad's life long before my dad ever came to the Lord. My dad can share stories of how pastors would, the pastor would stand at the door and, and greet him and invite him in, and he'd say, I'm not coming in there. And before he knew it, one Sunday, he turned that wheel around and he walked back into church. I'm pretty sure my mom fell off her seat that day because he had said no for so long, but he, and he didn't know why he was there. He, he would tell us that story all the time. I didn't know why I turned around. I didn't know why I went back. <laughs> but God. My dad never left the doors of the church. My dad gave his heart to the Lord. My dad began to serve in ministry. My dad began to lead our family into um, what it meant to be followers of Christ. That was the seeking grace of God at work in the life of my dad. And I am so thankful for that because I am who I am today because of that. So that seeking grace wasn't just a seeking grace for my dad. It was a seeking grace to change the path of our family to bring me to where I am today. The seeking grace of God in your life is more than just about you. Thank goodness for that. The initial activity of the Holy Spirit is prevenient because it always precedes our response. How many of you have heard of that term, prevenient grace? Sometimes we hear those words and and we think, ooh, theological terms. And I'll be the first one to say when Jeremy would come home from seminary, you know, I loved hearing these stories about seminarians today and the things that they learned. But I remember when Jeremy was in seminary studying and he'd come home and he'd be so excited about something. And I'm like, I don't even know what that word is, let alone what it means. And prevenient was one of those terms that I hadn't heard a lot. But to understand it, it's it's grace that comes before our response to God. It's that working in our lives before we turn to him and say, I acknowledge you. He's there. He's there. Um, as a kid, I remember as a pastor, our pastor didn't use the term Holy Spirit. Our, ta- our pastor loved the term Holy Ghost. Well, I was terrified of that because the story, like Casper the Ghost and, and Ghostbusters and all these movies that had ghosts, ghosts were not a nice thing. They were freaky to me. And so I hated the term the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is not a scary thing. The Holy Spirit is that presence in our lives that's there to guide us. And, and you know, as we get older, we learn what these things actually mean. The presence of the Holy Spirit in my life actually helps to cast out fear. It's not the presence of that scary ghost that I didn't understand. It's that presence that says, I am here with you to cast out the fears that try to take over. Relationships require cooperation. Amen? Yeah, we, we, we would probably all raise two hands and an amen on that one. Um, it's like a young couple, right? He sees her, oh, I'll change it around. She sees him across the room, because this was our case. She sees him across the room. She wants to know his name. She wants to know him. She wants him to know her, right? She wants him to acknowledge her. She wants to be seen by him. Um, this is what the Holy Spirit is. Uh, You know, I intentionally was standing in front of the whole class 
at one point when I first met Jeremy because I wanted him to see me. I was waiting for him to turn his head toward me. He did. He wanted to run the other direction at first. Thankfully, that is not the case with Christ in our lives. He doesn't, you know, we, Christ is in your life and he wants to be seen by you. He's waiting. He crosses your path. He's present in your life, whether you feel him or not. He's just waiting for you to turn your head toward him. And the great thing is, is that when you do turn your head toward him, he doesn't go running. Nothing burns down. He's just, he's waiting right there. He's waiting for your acknowledgement of him. Um, We have to work out what God is working in us. So God is that provenient grace, that seeking grace. It's being worked out in our life before we ever know what's happening. But the thing is, we have to actually, we have to accept what's being offered to us. And we have to work that out through our life. Um, British, British missiologist Leslie Newbigin famous, fam- I'm sorry, famously said, faith is the hand that grasps the finished work of Christ and makes it my own. Let me read that again. Faith is the hand that grasps the finished work of Christ and makes it my own. So Christ began a work in me, and my faith is saying, I grasp that hand. And then I get to see what Christ does through me. The provenient grace of God leads to repentance and transformation. We're going to look at provenient grace from just a slightly different angle. We know that God's grace is for us, right? Hopefully you know that, that God's grace is for you. Um, But we need to remember that God's grace is for everyone else around us. Because sometimes it's hard for us to remember that God's grace is for him or for her or for them, right? We as a church get real icky sticky sometimes and say they and them. Guess what? God's grace is for them just as much as it's for every one of us in this room. God's grace is for everyone. His provenient grace goes before. Uh, We might be, sometimes I think we're tempted to think, ah, they're too far gone. Oh, but they did. Or they live this way or that way. And God says, I don't care. They're my creation. And if they will turn to me, I will come to them. He's just waiting. Uh, We need to have confidence that God's love is for everyone. Ephesians 1, 7 says his love is extravagant. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. God's love is relentless and it is unchangeable. I wish I could bring everyone up here to share a story of, of God's love for them because I think some of us could share about that relentless love of Christ in our lives. How many of you can say that in your life? You have a story where you say, man, the the love of Christ was relentless in my life. Yeah, thank you. Um, The song Reckless Love, Corey Asbury uses words like, before I spoke a word, before I took a breath. Those two lines right there speak of that seeking grace, that grace that goes before anything. You know, the day Nola was conceived the seeking grace of Christ was already at work in her life. And even now as she sits here in services, 
the seeking grace of Christ is at work drawing Nola to him as an infant. That's the work of Christ. And he doesn't quit just because you become a big person, just because you grow up, because he realizes some of us need a lot longer of his seeking before we get it through our thick skulls that he's just there waiting for us. He just needs us to turn to him. If God is at work and he goes before, then we don't have to worry what someone else will say when we reach out to them. Remember, um, we talk about speaking to others and, and sharing truth in other people's lives. And sometimes we get intimidated and we say, ah, oh, but that person, whatever. Sometimes I think we, we think that we have to finish the thing, right? Like we see someone comes into my life. We'll just, I'll give an example. I'll use myself. Someone comes into my life and I see that person and I think, I need to, I need to pray with that person. I need them to get saved. I need them to turn their life around. I need, and I have a whole list of what I need. And what God wants is you just to be a seed planter. Sometimes all you get to do is plant a seed, but you don't necessarily get to see the harvest. But we have to start with planting a seed. Because if no one starts planting a seed, then how are they ever going to get to where he wants them to be? So we need to be seed planters, right? We don't have to take on the whole thing. That's the great work of the kingdom and the body of Christ is we all work together. I might speak truth into someone's life, and then Teresa meets them a year later, and Teresa speaks truth into their life. And then Don sees them at work or something, and, and then Don speaks truth into their life. And then Brandy runs into him, and Brandy speaks truth into their life. And then Patty sees him, and then Patty gets to actually pray with that person. And look, God used all of these people to plant seeds in this person's life to bring them to where he wanted them. That is the seeking work of Christ through our lives. He uses us in his seeking of others. We know that God seeks, and so now I want us to look at how God saves. Romans 6.23, a verse that I memorized as a little kid, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, you know, that I didn't, I didn't necessarily learn that word, what, it wasn't in there when I learned it, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not just the gift of God. What, get, what kind of gift is it? Free. Free. How much does free cost you? Well, we could say nothing, but that's not always true. His gift is free to us. It doesn't mean we're not going to pay the price of our sins. It doesn't mean it's not going to cost us time and commitment and work and effort. But it is nothing that we did to deserve that gift. It is a free gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Thinking that we're going to make it to heaven based on all of the good works that we've done, the good behavior that we've displayed, or our acts of, of kindness alone, that's called moralism. Um, in 2004, Gallup had a poll that, to see what Americans believe about heaven. 77% of Americans believe that they have a good or excellent chance of going to heaven. These same people believe that only six out of their 10 friends are going to heaven. 
I think sometimes we think just a little bit too much of ourselves and of our own abilities. And we also don't think that God's grace is extended to others. So these people that are like, oh, I'm going to heaven, I've been good, but mm, my friends, not so much. We can be real good at picking the flaws of others apart. But it can be really hard to look inside at ourselves and, check and recognize our own flaws. Some of you are like, no, I recognize my flaws all too well. I pick myself apart regularly. But if we really think about it, it can be really easy for us to pick apart the flaws of everyone around us without considering our own. But we need to remember what the verse says, by his grace and not by anything that you have done. Our efforts, our intentions, and our goodness are not enough. Only God's grace is. Um, through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we're able to be saved. This is what we call atonement. To be, you break that down, at one meant. We become at one with Christ through the atonement. Why do we need to be saved? We need to be saved because of sin. Sin. Oh, that's an ugly word. John Wesley defines sin as a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. Um, I read this example of, of sin, and, and I thought, oh, interesting. Um, how many of you have ever heard a sibling, and maybe um, you in here or teens or kids in here can agree with this, how many of you have ever looked at your sibling and said, you're not the boss of me? How, ah, my son will proudly raise his hand on that one. You've said that to your wife. Okay, honesty. How many of you in here are, have you ever, ever heard that? Like teachers in here? Come on, you've ever heard a kid look at another friend and go, you're not the boss of me? Yeah. I've heard that phrase again and again and again. You're not, you're not in charge of me. Um, it's, and we, you know, sometimes we want to laugh at that, right? I'm going to be honest. When my kids would say things like that sometimes, I literally had to turn around and walk away because I knew I shouldn't be laughing at it. But even in that moment, that is sin. Because that is, the, a parent puts a child in charge, let's say it's a babysitter or a teacher, and, and the, they will look at you in the face and say, but you're not in charge of me. That is the sin nature of a child. And we have a hard time recognizing that. We have a hard time going, oh, but they're just kids. You're right. But sin enters the world the minute we're born. We have a sinful nature. Ugh. It's the heart attitude of sin coming out in a child. And then you grow up and those sins become a little more defiant, right? Maybe a little more pronounced. You sign your own declaration of independence when you say, I'm going to do it my way in my strength. We're not meant to have our own declaration of independence. That shouldn't even exist in our lives. It should be a declaration of dependence on the one who can carry us through all of that. Knowing that something is wrong and doing it anyway, that is sin. Knowing that we should do something and choosing not to do it, that is also sin. Both the doing and the not doing can be sin. And both of those are missing the mark. As fallen people, we're not free to do whatever we wish. Um, we're actually captive to sin. If anyone ever told you that uh, living in sin is not fun, well, that's actually a lie. Right? And some of you are like, oh, 
But the truth is, if sin wasn't fun, we wouldn't be tempted to sin. But the fun of sin doesn't last. The fun of sin is not profitable in our lives. And the fun of sin is going against Christ's best for us. And so, yeah, it might be fun because we're drawn to it, right? I mean, I, I remember, uh, like, when the kids were little and you would tell them, um, no, you can't play with that, or you can't eat that, or you can't do that. You would tell them no to something, right? And I would turn around, and I remember, like, seeing they're at the table, like, walking away with whatever it was that I told them no. They're tempted. They want that. They're drawn to that. Sin draws them in. And those are learned as kids. Um, the path where sin leads is always destructive. Sin is a vicious cycle that leads to painful destruction. Uh, look at the prodigal son. He lived, he wanted to run his life his own way and do his own thing. He takes his inheritance early. He lives the high life, man. He has fun. He parties it up. But after a while, all of his friends disappear, his money runs out, and he finds himself broken and humiliated, living where? Anybody remember? In a pig pen. He went to live the high life, and he ended up in a pig pen. Sin will find its way to destruction. It's a vicious cycle that leads to painful destruction. Most of us have heard the term estrangement. I think of it as um, you hear people say, I'm estranged from my mother or from my father or from my family. Sin is estrangement between you and your creator. Adam and Eve, uh, they, that apple looked so good, right? God said you can eat of anything in the garden that you want to, but that. And all they wanted was that. And the problem is when they ate that, man, that tasted good. But it opened their eyes. Sin entered the world through that action. And so they ate of that apple, and when they ate of that apple, all of a the sudden, they realize that they are naked, and they become ashamed. And they want to hide in the garden from their creator. They entered the game of hide and seek. Don't look at me, God. I'm messed up. Sin did that. Sin brings fear and guilt and shame. Sin brings alienation and condemnation and separation. Sin makes enemies out of your friends. Sin turns intimacy into hostility. Sin breaks fellowship. So what do we do since we're hopeless sinners? Romans 5.8 says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is this love not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Christ's death on the cross breaks down all the walls that our sin and rebellion build up between us and God. The power of sin in our lives is broken when Christ is at the center. It is broken through his death on the cross. It's not broken by acts that we do. It's not broken by doing things right and coming to church. No, it's broken by the relationship that we have with Christ.
The only way we experience full redemption and abiding peace is by realizing that our hope is in Jesus. We receive the gift by believing in God. All of us holds an unopened gift in our hands. That's God's seeking grace. And our, it's our choice to open it, and it's our choice to accept that gift. It would be a tragedy to never open a gift. I could not do that. If someone gave me a gift, I'm not going to leave it unopened. I love presents too much. But yet, how many of us don't open that gift that he offers us? Or how many of us wrap it back up and put it on the counter because mm, we want to do it our way for a little while? And God says, no, keep it open. Keep it open. Um, we can do all the good we can imagine. We can be good all the time. We don't have to accept his gift to us. But then our good is wasted. When we accept Christ and when we believe in him, our good works flow out of our faith. Because, you know, people say that all the time. Well, why does it say you should do good works then? Well, your works and everything you do flows out of your faith in God. But it's not those works that make him love you. It's not those works that make him have grace towards you. It's impossible to say that we've received the grace of God and that we have true biblical faith if there's nothing different about our lives. We are saved by grace, but if there isn't something actually happening in our concrete character and our existing behavior, then it's not real faith. The good news as Christians, we experience repentance and transformation. We are his handiwork. We are the works of art that he puts on display to show his glory. In a way, we become God's show and tell. Remember show and tell as a kid? Maybe you did it, maybe you did How many of you had got to do show and tell as a kid? Right, I love show and tell. I had the hardest time deciding what my one thing was going to be. I was going to take the school to show and tell. Most kids, like some kids would be dying, embarrassed, not, didn't want to get up in front of the class. Not me. I couldn't wait. Like, I'm going to tell you all about my thing that I brought. And I couldn't wait. I wanted to take my dog one time, and I didn't get to. I was sad about that. But show and tell. It's that thing. You bring it in, and you put it on display, and you get to, you get to talk about what it is. We are God's show and tell. Our life is show and tell for him. In Christ, you are no longer slave, but you are free. In Christ, you are redeemed. In Christ, you are saved from the pit of hell. In Christ, you are justified, making right what was wrong. In Christ, you are made new. In Christ, you are adopted into his family. Amen? The question I have for you today is, what is your life show and telling? Are you still holding a wrapped gift, saying, I haven't opened that? Are you extending the grace to others that Christ extends to you every day? Is your life showing and telling the redemptive work of God to those that are around you? Bow your heads with me. How many of you in here would say, I'm holding that gift and I haven't unwrapped it yet? How many of you would say, I want my life to be 
I want my show and tell to bring glory to Christ. Thank you. Amen. God, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you, your grace is at work in us before we ever know what's going on. That from the beginning of time, your grace has been poured out upon mankind and we are recipients of that grace. And God, I pray that we would turn our eyes and our hearts and our heads toward you to be able to receive that which you have for us. God, help us to realize it's not about all the good things that we do. It's about the relationship that we have with you that matters. And if our relationship with you isn't what it needs to be, God, may we turn our eyes towards you. May we open the gift that you've given us and say, I accept this. God, may we extend your grace to those that are around us, to our family members, to our friends, to our coworkers, to that person we just can't stand. God, give us your eyes for others. Give us your heart for others. Give us your ears for others. Help us to be seed planters of grace in the lives of others so that a harvest can be that the harvest can happen. May we not be intimidated. May we know that your grace has gone before even what we might say to someone. And Lord Jesus, may our life be a shining reflection of you every day. Not just on Sunday morning when we put on our Sunday best and we come into church and we, we polish ourselves up, but God, may our life be a shining reflection of you at home when we're frustrated, at work when we're exhausted, at the end of the week when we have nothing left, may our life still be a shining reflection of you. We praise you for your seeking grace. We thank you for your saving grace. And we pray that we would, I pray that we would surrender our lives to you to be recipients of that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me. As you go this week, it's my prayer that you will turn your eyes and your ears and your hearts to the one who offers you grace. And that in, in receiving that grace, that you will then turn and give that grace to others. And that your lives will be glorious show and tell of Christ. Until we meet again. Thank you for joining us today. We would love for you to join us in person. Our address is 2022 East Main Street in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you'd like to make a donation to keep our podcast ministry going, you can do so online at reallifecommunity.org. Thanks again for listening.